ahead and take your Bibles, if you will turn to Matthew chapter 5. For those who've been with us for a while, last time I preached, I began uh, a look at the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of those things when you don't preach frequently, uh, it can sometimes be difficult when you, you know, are asked to preach or you're invited to preach, you like, where do I start? You know, what do I talk about? Uh, and so for myself, I've always liked to have a passage that, um, you know, we can go through and we can learn from, and I know I can continue to go back to, so that whether it be a month or two months or six months between those, um, you know, I always have that. Uh, so we did that through the book of Ruth, um, and now I'm going to take a look at the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to read the first 10 verses, and then we will get into our passage. Matthew 5, 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for a passage like this. We thank you so much for your word. Lord, I know that of myself, I have nothing uh, to add to your word, Lord. Uh, But Lord, uh, I pray that you would use me to speak to your people and allow your word and your spirit to do its work in our hearts. I pray as we look at this passage that it would be instructive to our hearts, but more importantly, God, uh, as we apply it to our lives, that it would be transformative. Lord, as we uh, look at these truths of your scripture, I pray that they would drive us to a worship and a devotion of you. pray that it would look, uh, cause us to look at our lives, to uh, examine them, and Lord, to... Uh, root out any sin or bitterness that might exist, and Lord, to uh, look to you and to follow you in faith. So Lord, we pray that uh, your spirit might have full reign here, and that Lord, you would use this as you see fit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So since it's been a little bit since our last visit to the Sermon on the Mount, I figured it was important for us to kind of uh, keep a couple things in the back of our mind. I'm not going to go back and re-preach the last sermon. You're welcome to go back if you want to listen to it. Spent a little bit more time in that previous sermon, kind of you know, outlying the Sermon on the Mount and helping us understand a little bit about uh, what's going on in a bigger picture. And we looked at the first of what is commonly called the Beatitudes. These are all of these statements that we just read in these first 10, and I know some would include 11 as well. But these first few verses of, you know, blessed are the, and fill in the blank, and there is a blessing that's pronounced on those who are this way. And then there's also the um, the you know what the blessing actually is, and so we've come to know this as the Beatitudes. And like I said, a couple things for us to keep in mind. First, a warning. We want to be careful to not to look at something like this, these attitudes, these descriptions of people, as a to-do list. So oftentimes, when we approach lists in Scripture, our sinful, legalistic mind wants to just turn it into a formula. 
turn it into, you know, the 10 step program to earn God's favor or to, you know, make my life, you know, wonderful and rich and, and, you know, fulfilling and all these other things that the world so often wants us to adopt, right? That's why there's so many talk shows and self-help books because we love lists. We love things that will just tell us if you do this, this outcome will happen. And so we just got to lock in. And even Christians, we are tempted to look at these things and look at them as, like I said, a formula that says, well, if I can do these things and if I do this and then this and then this, then God will love me and God will be obligated to somehow supply me X or Y or Z, right? We have to be on guard against those things. These are descriptive of those who enjoy God's blessing, but they are not meant to be a list whereby we are somehow you know, obligating God to give us certain things. And so just be on guard as we look at these to not allow our legalism to creep in. Secondly, I want us to remember that blessing here carries a, a, a greater weight than what probably we come across in our day-to-day lives, right? We think of blessedness, and probably most of us would think of happiness, and certainly when the Bible talks about blessing, happiness is, you know, we, we can be happy. We do experience happiness when we are blessed of God, right? Um, but I think in our society, uh, we throw around these terms and a lot of times they mean very little, right? Uh, somebody throws a hashtag blessed on something, you know, and, and that's supposed to mean something when, you know, uh, you know, hey, you got a passing grade in school, hashtag blessed, right? Um, so when we talk about the Beatitudes in particular, I want us to keep in mind that the definition, the, the understanding of blessing in Scripture carries a lot of weight to it. It carries, it incorporates things such as happiness and prosperity, but we also have to be on guard because there's so many who want to twist the blessing of God to make it again consume their own lusts. Even in the Christian church, right, there are many who adopt a, a gospel, a prosperity gospel, using things like this to talk about how God is going to bless their lives. And so they talk about, you know, uh, being blessed by God, uh, and it primarily has to do with material gain. And so we hear preachers typically on the radio or on the TV. That's not to say if you're on the TV or radio that you're teaching falsehoods, but we understand that there is a following out there. It's called the prosperity gospel, whereby, you know, they, they look at God as kind of a genie who is, you know, there to grant our every wish, and that if we are not living a materially prosperous life, we somehow are not right with God. We somehow do not have the right understanding of Christianity because only those Christians who are successful in you know, their endeavors and in their financial riches and in their standing are somehow actually blessed by God. This is not the biblical definition of blessedness. Does God bless his children occasionally, materially? Sure. Is that part of what, the way that he provides? We know that God, God's people never beg bread, right? We know that God provides for us. But wealth or status are not always indicators of blessedness, are they? And I think we can look at our, our world around us and common sense would tell us just because they're succeeding does not mean they are blessed by God. 
And so keeping all these things in mind, as we look at the Beatitudes, we want to be careful to understand blessing and be careful of our legalistic temptations for lists. So what is blessing? When Jesus here begins his sermon on the mount with a series of blessings, what is he really saying here? What is he meaning when he talks about God's blessing? We know that God has blessed nature. Typically, when we think of the biblical definition, it has the idea of one who is favored by God. In the Old Testament, a lot of times it was associated with enlargement. So you talk about enlarging their tents, enlarging their land, had to do with uh, benefits that were given and something that, that raised that person up. And specifically, coming from God. And we know that God has certainly blessed creation. This idea of fruitfulness uh, is common throughout Scripture. When God blesses creation in Genesis, he blesses not only nature itself, but he blesses Adam and Eve specifically. It says in Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so part of God's blessing was a fruitfulness. Uh, and it was, it was uh, a dominion over uh, the nature that he had given. It was uh, in relation to God and God's designation for man. Psalms 1 describes the man who is blessed as the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And it describes this person whose delight is in God as, as being blessed by him, and he's going to be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. And so, again, we look at this and we see uh, you know, prosperous, we see success, we see fruitfulness. Um, and so we look at these things, and, and all of blessedness biblically can include those things. But notice it doesn't necessarily specify these material gains, right? It doesn't necessarily specify you're going to be rich and you're not going to have any problems, because if we look through Scripture, we see that those who live godly will suffer persecution, and so we have to understand that blessedness doesn't preclude any type of suffering or persecution, but it does uh, bring a fruitfulness with it. David identified in Psalm 32 another uh, blessing that is received from God. Psalm 32, 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And we find Psalms is replete with all kinds of speaking of blessing, right? Asking God for blessing or talking about how God has blessed them. But yet, strangely enough, in the Psalms is also we find a lot of suffering, don't we? So this again reminds us that the biblical definition of blessing does not preclude suffering. And so when I say, just understand, when I talk about blessing, or I talk about happiness, we want to get rid of some of those superficial definitions that we see so often in the world around us and understand that God's promise, God's blessing is on those who, yes, exhibit these, but also they exhibit these because God has blessed them, right? 
And so we're going to look at these statements. The first statement begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And again, we're not going to re- repeat that, but just as a reminder from the previous time that we talked about this, blessed are the poor in spirit, as we looked at that passage, um, that in spirit is very important. Now, again, in Luke, it talks about blessed are the poor. Um, and certainly we talked about how, you know, if being poor was a blessing, we are the most blessed amongst uh, Windsor, it seems like many of us, right? We would say, Jared, I've got the blessings coming out of my ears because I am so poor, right? So as we looked at this, we understood that when Christ was saying, blessed are the poor, he's not just referring to those who are materially or financially poor. Otherwise, like I said, anybody, we would just sell all of our stuff and boy, wouldn't we be blessed. And listen, can financial prosperity, can riches be an obstacle to uh, blessing? Certainly they can be, right? Certainly they can be a temptation. But what Jesus was referring to when he talked about being poor in spirit, there was a spiritual component to this. It's not those poor financially, but poor spiritually. It had the idea of those who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy, who have come to the understanding that in themselves they have nothing by which to merit God's grace, by which to earn their salvation. And so blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have come to the recognition that I don't deserve God's grace, that I cannot earn his mercy, that I am spiritually bankrupt, then receive and enjoy the blessing of God, and they inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so just as we saw a spiritual component to that first beatitude, we would naturally expect that the second would have a spiritual component as well. Because when we look at this statement, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, that seems like a very strong paradox, doesn't it? Happy are the sad, to put it in a modern vernacular. Happy are the sad. It's definitely unexpected when we talk about blessing, when we talk about prosperity, when we talk about fruitfulness, happy are the sad. How can the sad be happy? By very definition, being sad means you are not happy. The Bible has many words for sadness. Just as we in our English language have many different descriptors for how we feel when we're sad, right? The Bible uses nine different terms for sadness. Obviously, we don't need to go into all of those. But in this particular, you know, and and just keep in mind, when the Bible uses terms to refer to sadness or to refer to sorrow, each of those words can have a different meaning. We we all experience some sadness, right? Uh, And sadness can have a wide variety of feeling and emotion behind it. There's the sadness that some of you will feel this afternoon when your football team loses, right? It's hopefully a very passing one right? There's the sadness you feel when things don't turn out quite the way you expected, right? Um, But then there's a deeper sadness. Maybe there's a sadness that comes from, you know, an argument that you've had with a a relative or a friend, and so you you feel a little distant from them, and you're you're sad about how things turned out. Uh, Maybe it goes even deeper. 
And those emotions are stronger because those relationships are broken or you haven't uh, had those relationships. Maybe you've lost a person who is very close to you. And so even our understanding of sadness includes you know, the more superficial, but also the very depth of emotion. When Jesus uses the term here, blessed are those who mourn, it's a term commonly associated with wailing. It's a term commonly associated with, you know, just the, the depths of, of sadness, like you would find at a funeral when someone is lost. In fact, it's similar to the mourning that was taking place when Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb, and you see the mourners are there weeping, Right? It's that same idea, that same word to help us understand what he means when he says mourn. It's a deep emotion, not a passing fad, not a I had a bad day, but grief. And so is Jesus really saying that all who experience tragedy then in life are uniquely blessed by God and happy? I mean, surely there's a sadness that's Common and, frankly, appropriate when we deal with loss, right? Fortunately, probably every one of us has experienced this to some degree. Right? We've all lost people that we care about, and we've wept at some of those memories, and we wept at the fact that they're no longer around. And we see the Psalms replete with these Uh, expressions of a deep sorrow and a sadness, whether it be over tough times, whether it be over opposition, persecution, loneliness, loss. And we know that God has compassion on our sorrows. We know that those who experience tragedy, God has sympathy for, God, God cares for. But is Jesus saying that just those who experience Sadness and grief in life are uniquely blessed by him? Again, we have to understand there is a spiritual component to this, isn't there? Because if we look around, again, common sense tells us not every person we've met who's experienced deep sadness has it turned into joy or happiness. There are many who experience grief and it turns them bitter. It turns them resentful, turns them angry. It turns them in on themselves and they adopt maybe even this hermit lifestyle where they've closed themselves off to relationship and to emotions. And that certainly isn't enjoying the blessing or the comfort of God. So what is Jesus referring to when he talks about those who mourn experiencing comfort? I think the best way to understand this, and the biblical definition we would look for would be described as godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. And what do the godly sorrow over? Is it just over lost relationships? Is it just over things that haven't gone their way? What are the godly to sorrow over? Well, biblically, we see, we're going to see some passages here, Ultimately, godly sorrow is over sin. Both our sin that separates us from God and the sin of those around us and in the world today that grieves our Heavenly Father. 
And when we think about it, even the, even the sorrow we feel at the death of a loved one, isn't that also kind of the ultimate outflow of what sin has done? Because the only reason death is in the world is because sin exists. And it's why death is such an enemy for us, because it is an intruder. It is not the norm. It has become the norm because sin is pervasive and sin is in our nature and sin brings death. And so even when we stand at the loss of a loved one, we're reminded again of the tragedy of sin that has brought death into this world. And it's funny because we live in a world that's so obsessed with pleasure. A statement like this should hit our ears very differently It should be a little bit of a surprise. I imagine the people sitting on the side of the mountain as Jesus begins to speak, and he says, by the way, happy and blessed are the sad. Everybody was like, "Uh, I'm sorry, I thought I heard you said sad. Right? They probably had to strain a little bit closer because this is not what we would expect. This is not what they expected. Because we live in a world so obsessed with finding happiness. We live in a world so obsessed with enjoying the pleasures of this life. We spend billions, if not trillions, trying to improve our situation, trying to improve ourselves, trying to gather to ourselves possessions, trying to heap up friendships and relationships, uh, trying to find success and prominence in our work and in our efforts, hoping always that the next thing will bring the elusive satisfaction, the elusive happiness that we seem to taste just for a moment, and then it's gone. And we lose ourselves in entertainment and in distraction, feeling a brief elation, but never true Happiness, never fulfilling joy. So blessed are those who mourn, flies in the face of what our culture says we ought to pursue. But happiness is found not in these careless, whimsical kind of, you know, chasing after pleasure, but instead it's in recognition and sorrow over sin, and reacting to it in the right way. And that's going to be a key piece as we move forward. Jesus blessing the mourners, I think, first of all, shows us that sin is always a serious matter. Sin is always grievous. Sin is not something that God trivializes, regardless of what our world does. Society may revel in it, they may delight in it, they may may celebrate and pronounce it proudly, but God does not wink at it, and God does not simply look past it. All sin is a serious matter. It is because of sin that God the Father in love sent his Son to suffer and to die and to endure the humiliation of the cross. The high payment for our redemption shows the deep gravity of sin. If nothing else, the redemption of Christ and what he went through shows us that sin is a big deal. 
And those who laugh it up, those who ignore its consequences, those who ignore the weightiness of it, will one day find themselves on the other side. In Luke 6, when Jesus is giving his sermon, Luke has the record of the Sermon on the Mount there. And he also pronounces not just the positive, like he does in Matthew, but the negative as well. Luke 6.25, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And so now we see a contrast developing. We see a world that, for the most part, is trying to be happy and trying to laugh things off and trying to, to seek after pleasure. And what happens to those is that eventually they become the mourners. They become the weepers. But those who weep now, those who sorrow over sin, as we see in a little bit, will experience comfort. So careful, we, Christian, we need to be careful that we don't adopt the same approach in our own lives. Because sin is common does not mean that it is okay. Because sin is, is all around us and pervasive doesn't mean it's acceptable and doesn't mean that it's not a big deal. Doesn't, again, the temptation is to say, well, yes, I sin, but my sins are little compared to And we justify ourselves. But instead, sorrow over sin is the right reaction to it. If it grieves God, it grieves God's people. Rather than glossing over it, Paul shows the right responses to weep over it. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians. We'll start there because we'll get to 2 Corinthians eventually here. But 1 Corinthians. We're all familiar with this passage, Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And throughout the letter of the Corinthians, Paul is, Paul is correcting a number of different sins and, and problems that have crept into the church. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's addressing them and he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. So Paul is really calling out the church because they've allowed sin in there. They've, they've not taken it seriously. They've not dealt with it. They've allowed sin in their church. And it's a sin so great that even unbelievers are going, whoa, seriously? You guys are allowing that? We don't even do that. And so what is Paul's answer as, as he says, hey, a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. And he says, you are arrogant. Ought meaning this is the common sense response. This is what our thought should be. The natural thought when sin, uh, a grievous sin like this is in the midst of the church, ought you not rather to what? Mourn. So Paul is showing us that when sin is allowed and sin is, is not dealt with and sin is taken lightly, it's a problem. Because the right response to sin is to mourn over it, to take it seriously, to weep and to desire that it be done away with. James 4 talks about talking to, uh, again, the people he's writing to, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Notice, be wretched and mourn and weep. 
and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So James is tying the mourning over sin to a change, which then results in humility. As they look at the seriousness of their sin, they no longer laugh it off. They take it seriously. They realize it's an offense. They mourn. They weep over it. They're sorry for it. And this humility then brings them to the Lord, and it turns their mourning into joy. And so we see that the right response for sin, because of its seriousness, is mourning. David wept over his own sin, didn't he? Psalm 51. It's a passage that so many of us are familiar with, probably because if you're like me, you know, and we sin, we look and we think, man, that's got to be my attitude. That's got to be my heart. And we look at that and we see just a great example of how our, our attitude ought to be towards the sin in our lives. And David is grieved over that because, and what does he say? That his sin, he sins against God. Now, did he sin against others? Certainly he sinned against Uriah. Certainly he sins against Bathsheba. Certainly he sins against his, his wife that he was married to at the time. All of those were true, but ultimately he recognized that sin first and foremost is an offense to God. And so godly sorrow always has, godly sorrow always has God's holiness and God's glory in view. And this is what keeps us from sloughing off on sin for thinking that it's no big deal. It's what keeps us examining our hearts and asking God to purge us and to cleanse us. Because it's not a comparison to one another. It's the gazing at the glory and the holiness of God and recognizing how far we fall short and weeping over that. Peter wept bitterly as he denied the Lord three times, didn't he? And it's not just over our sin. Jeremiah, for those who've been in our equip class and been coming to that, we understand that Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, isn't he? And he's known for that title because throughout Jeremiah, we see him crying and weeping over the sins of the people and over the destruction that is looming because of that sin. And he sees the impact that their sin is having on their society and on their children and on God himself as they turn their back on him. Jesus weeps over the sin of Jerusalem. He sees a city in desperate need of repentance, and he offers to them that forgiveness, but they will not. And it brings sadness to the heart of our Savior to see their stubbornness and their rejection and their pursuit of their sin rather than their abandonment of it. Godly sorrow always has in view our sin in the light of God's goodness and ought to produce in us a desire to see God ultimately glorified and our sin dealt with. You realize when we confess our sins, we're really making a pronouncement on the justice of God, on the holiness of God. And when we refuse to confess our sins, when we refuse to recognize them as sinful, we are lowering the holiness of God in our eyes. Because if God has declared it wrong, who are we to say then it is right? And so confession is really an act of agreement with God, isn't it? That God 
Whatever my own thoughts about this sin were, they are wrong, and you are right. You are vindicated. You are justified in your anger towards this. And I repent. I recognize it. Godly sorrow looks at our sin, sees it as offensive, and desires its change. And so we see, as he announces this blessing on those who mourn, mourning over sin, their own and the sin all around them, There is a second half to this verse, isn't there? The good news, the blessing is that those who mourn over sin in their lives now will be what? Comforted. Comforted. Imagine a life where all we see is our sin and no hope the wrath of God coming on us. What kind of a life would that be? What kind of an existence would that be? One of depression, one of sadness, one of fear. But the good news is, is the outcome of godly sorrowing for sin is repentance, not despair. It is comfort, not hopelessness. Yes, sin grieves the Spirit. Yes, it caused the Father to send His beloved Son. But He did send His Son so that we might be forgiven, so that our sin might be dealt with, so that God might be vindicated and we might be made righteous. It's interesting, as Paul denounced the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and says, you should have mourned, he then follows that up, and I know there's some question about whether he's referring to this specific incident or not. It's fine if we disagree on that. But 2 Corinthians, he then sends a follow-up letter, and after having confronted them about sin, he sends a letter where he is congratulating them for the action that they've taken. So we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm just going to read the passage verse, starting verse 5. So again, Paul has sent a letter initially condemning them or, 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 or pointing out the fact that they need to deal with sin. And so even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So Paul is saying, hey, my life has been turmoil. I'm dealing with persecution. So even as Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians, trying to encourage them, he's in the midst of persecution and problems and tribulations himself. So he's like, I've had all this conflict and and we've had these problems. Uh, But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which he was comforted. So Paul is saying, I've been comforted by the news that Titus has brought. Titus has been comforted by the news that he's bringing. For even if I made you grieve with my letter. So Paul wrote a letter denouncing their sin, and it made them feel bad. It made them grieve over the sins that they were committing. And he says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. And we've all been there, right? Do I say this difficult thing? Uh, how are they going to take it? Uh, I know it needs to be said, but boy, it's a tough thing to sing. And I, you know, we can kind of get that idea. Paul's writing this letter. And of course, we understand he's on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, he, he's admitting, hey, like, I, you know, I, I wanted to tell you the truth, but boy, I, I didn't know how you're going to take it, you know, and I was a little bit worried. Um, For even if I made you grieve with the letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, 
For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. The mourning over their sin wasn't forever. It didn't lead them to despair or to depression or to giving up on their faith. Instead, it did grieve them for a while. As it is, though, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. I didn't want to break your hearts. But I am happy that you were grieved into what? Repenting. For you felt a godly grief, godly sorrow, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And notice the outcome. So Paul writes this letter. He tells that like it is. It causes them to feel bad and to feel sorrow over what they've done. And the response is not to say, well, we're just giving up. We're no good. We'll never be anything for God. No, instead, it, it stirs in them a zeal. Notice, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Also, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. In other words, when they saw the seriousness of their sin, and they saw the holiness of God, and as they read that letter, they were convicted, they realized it was serious, and that stirred in them not a desire to give up and throw it all away, but instead to commit themselves fully to God, to confess their sins, to repent and say, you know, we were wrong about that sin. Instead, we're going to confess that God is right about our sin. And it produced a godly zeal in them to deal with this sin and to then clear themselves and to, to serve God better. Paul had to be very direct with the Corinthians because they had not taken it seriously. But when they came to understand just how bad it was, it produced godliness. And that is the outcome. That is the outcome of godly sorrow. This is why those who mourn can be comforted, because there is a solution. When we repent, when we recognize our sin, we experience the forgiveness and the blessing of God. We experience his comfort as believers. I trust you feel this. When you go to God and you Confess your sin, but you find the comfort that is offered in that forgiveness. And let me just say, if you don't feel that, if your sin does overwhelm you, and if it keeps you from prayer, if it keeps you from reading the word of God, if it keeps you from attending church and from fellowship with your fellow believers, understand that's a problem. I think Rick had a quote, uh, it wasn't his, it's from Rosaria Butterfield, but he posted it this week, and I thought it was just a, a perfect uh, quote to throw in here. But it says, it's an act of Christian maturity to learn how to hate your sin without hating yourself. And we have to know the difference. Because unfortunately for many, their sin can become overwhelming. It becomes such a burden that they become incapacitated, unable to function, unable to deal. And that is not godly sorrow. As, the, as Corinthians says, it, worldly grief produces death. It's godly sorrow that produces repentance and salvation and life. 
And so if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whether you feel that emotionally or not, that truth remains. And so when we look to God and we confess our sins and we feel like we just haven't done enough, that's a wrong way of approaching our sin. That's a wrong understanding of what our forgiveness is based on. It's not seeing that Christ has fully paid for every one of our sins and that in Christ we are declared completely righteous. And therefore we don't have to perform certain rituals to somehow show God just how, how sorry we truly are. Because he's faithful and just. He has promised forgiveness not based on our how serious we are about it, so to speak, how much we're out to prove it, but be based on the work that Christ has accomplished for us, he grants forgiveness to those who repent. And so when we don't accept the forgiveness of God, we really make a statement on God as being not faithful, as being unjust, because he has said he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And so I urge you, if you have allowed your sin to overcome you in this way, we need to soak ourselves in the scriptures, to soak ourselves in the truth of what Christ has accomplished for you. And don't allow your Christian life to be based simply on your emotions that come and go, but on the sure promises of God. When God is drawing us to himself, he reveals the ugliness of our sin, and He, this in turn sends us running to our only refuge. Him, not away, but towards. And yet, of course, we cannot be comforted if we have not first mourned. This is the rest Christ offers, right? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. This is the promise of God. When Jesus in Luke is quoting from Isaiah 61, right? The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You understand? One of the reasons Christ came is fulfilling this. He's here to bind up the brokenhearted. So if we are brokenhearted over our sin... Understand, Christ, the Father, stands ready to embrace, ready to love, ready to forgive, ready to restore. Christ came to bind up the brokenhearted. So don't allow your sin to become overwhelming. Don't allow your sin to blind you to all that God offers So we take comfort not only in the forgiveness of our sin, but we take comfort also in the future eradication of sin. Remember Jesus and Luke said, hey, those who laugh now, they're going to mourn. And those who mourn will be comforted. We understand that part of the comfort that we receive in our mourning over sin now is the fact that sin's presence will not always be. This world as it is, is not the end. But God will return, and in the return of Christ, judgment will then fully and finally be carried out, 
Those who laughed will then weep and mourn. And those who have mourned over sin and experienced relationship with God will find peace and comfort and joy for eternity with him. Think about what Jesus is saying to his disciples as he prepares to leave. There in that last sermon that he's preaching the night before his death in John 16, Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you'll, see, you'll not see me, and again a little while you will see me? So he had made this pronouncement, hey, I'm going to go away, uh, you won't see me, but then you're going to see me again. And they're like, uh, I don't get it. And so he's like, you guys are asking this question in your head, so let me explain it to you. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And wasn't that the case when Christ was crucified, right? Uh, they rejoiced, hey, we finally got rid of this troublemaker, things are over, it's, night. it's done with, we can move on, and we've been able to keep our power. There was rejoicing You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. I'll trust the ladies in the audience to tell me whether, you know, how long they remember it. (laughs) For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. Jesus is saying, yes, it's tough now. I'm going away. You know, I'm going to be crucified, but your sorrow will be turned to joy because ultimately Christ will be victorious over sin. Christ will be victorious. And so we saw that in Christ's resurrection, he proved his victory over sin and death and the grave. And we look forward to the future promise and fulfillment when God not only had, who already has overcome sin, but when he finally eliminates the presence of sin, not just the power of sin. And so we can take comfort that the way things are in this world will not always be, and that God will be vindicated, and God will reign and rule, and that sin will ultimately be eradicated, and we will be free to worship him in perfect holiness, and perfect worship. So conclusion. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Saw that this entails a spiritual side of things, that those who weep over sin, those who mourn and sorrow in a godly way, experience comfort. Now let me just be quick to say, it's not to say that Christians are supposed to walk away, walk around sour and dour and miserable all the time, okay? Please do not walk away and think, well, there goes me attending comedy night for the Milo Clinic, right? Uh, no, it doesn't mean we're supposed to be prudes. We're supposed to you know, not in, have any enjoyment, but we understand the gravity of sin, and that is always there that when we see a world that is turning its back on God, and when we see in ourselves the failures and the temptations of sin, we don't just gloss over it and say, no big deal. We take it for the serious matter that it is. And we flee those lusts, and we run to Christ, and we confess our sins. A Christian life is not one that is sour or sad, 
It is one that is reflective, that is serious, that is sober, and that sees through the vapid, pleasure-seeking ideas of this society and knows the deep, true joy of loving Christ and having God's favor on their lives. And so we don't settle for those cheap tricks that the world throws at us. We aren't fooled by those momentary pleasures because we have drunk deeply from the joy and the fountain of salvation in Christ. So I ask, how do you see your sin, Christian? How do I see my sin? Make this personal. Have I allowed myself to become numb to its seriousness? Have I allowed a world around me to redefine what is acceptable and what is not? Instead of going and looking in the word of God for the truth of what God and his holiness demands. Have I looked to my neighbor to try to compare myself and think, well, compared to that person, I'm in better shape. Therefore, what I'm doing is no big deal. Have I indulged sin in my life? Have I sought comfort in sin instead of in Christ? Do I think seriously about it? Seriously enough to deal with it? To ask the Spirit to purge me, to search me? Will you see it for what it is? Do I seek the forgiveness of God for my sin regularly? Do I experience the joy of forgiveness, having confessed it? I ask another question, aside from how do you see your sin, have you allowed sin to overcome you? Have you allowed the weight of your sin to become unhealthy? Has it incapacitated your service to God? Has it driven you away from devotion and worship instead of towards it? It's a wrong approach. It's faithlessness. God desires that you enjoy that intimate relationship with him, and he is quick to forgive when we confess. And so we must abandon whatever our concept is of ourselves and recognize that what God has done for us and who we are in Christ overrides any of those things. Perhaps this morning you have never thought seriously about sin. Perhaps you have never really thought about what it means to offend a holy God and to be his adversary and to be separated from him. And so as we talk of sin, we almost can't comprehend it. But understand that if this morning you would recognize that as a sinner you stand in desperate need of forgiveness and that God the Father loves you so much that he would send his son to die for you, and that you can be forgiven if you repent from your sin, there is full freedom, full forgiveness, full restoration. And I urge you 
to take seriously your sin, to turn from it and turn to Christ, and to place your faith in him and find that comfort. I'm going to end with this statement that begins the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. Christian, will you not take comfort that in the midst of sin, there is peace and forgiveness and repentance? Let's pray. Father, we come to you recognizing the weight of sin and how great and unfathomable your holiness is. Lord, we can't even begin to comprehend the purity you are. Lord, forgive us if we have trivialized sin in our lives, if we have indulged sin in our lives. Because God, you have set us free from those things. You have called us out of darkness into light. Lord, I pray if there's any of us who are overcome by our sin, who feel a weight and an unworthiness, Lord, we know that we all stand unworthy in our own, but you have made us worthy in Christ. So Lord, let us rest on the promises that all of our sin is paid for by his precious blood. And may we take comfort in the forgiveness of sin. May we take joy in the fact that we are redeemed. And may that drive us, Lord, to share the wonderful truth of the gospel with our neighbor, our friends, with those that we interact with. Lord, we don't want to stand in a self-righteous judgment of this world that so often smacks more of our own selfishness, our own desires than it does of godly sorrow. Deliver us from an anger over sin that is merely based on our own comfort. But give us, Lord, the hatred of sin because of how it grieves you, and a love for our neighbor to see them delivered from it. Help us to be strengthened by the promises of your word for forgiveness. Help us to grow in godliness and zeal. And God, comfort us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.